Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, welcome back to the podcast, and I'm excited for our next guest today. We have Jessica Leahy, who is a teacher, a writer, and a mom. With over 20 years, she has taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for such notables as The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, which we're going to talk about today, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She's a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. She lives in Vermont with her husbands and two husbands. Listen to me. I, mean, I, look, I, got a little, I won't tell the rest of the world. There's a little side hustle there. That'll with, be fun. <laughs> with her husbands. No, the plural is on your sons. You have twin boys. And yeah. her second book, which we're going to talk a little bit at the end of the podcast, which is going to be released in April. And uh, Jess has promised she's going to come back on and talk more fully about that. But she'll give us a tease to her upcoming book, which is called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. I was giggling earlier because one of my all my dogs are in the room with me and one of them is snoring. And so I'm hoping that the little snores don't show up on oh, our yeah. podcast we'll, we'll today. Take a, yeah, well, well, they're, well, they're not snoring at the content. Let me tell you that. But yeah, let them let them snore and bark. We're, if there's one great thing that has happened during this pandemic is don't you find everybody has sort of just relaxed a little bit about all that uptight stuff? We're all humans. We're all doing this from home. It's all just we're just being real. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been really fun to get a glimpse into people's homes. It's, you know, it's added a layer of difficulty for teachers, of course, because suddenly we're being we're in kids' homes and that adds a layer of a layer of difficulty and a layer of uh, understanding of what's going on with kids, which has been really uh, nice to hear about, too. But yeah, I love seeing inside people's homes. Yeah, yeah, there's a real connection there. So I'm, I, your book um, is one of those books that I feel is like essential reading for every parent. And I think the oh, fact that so it's sweet. Well, no, I mean, I think it's a testament that when something becomes a New York Times bestseller, you know, you've hit a hot spot that needs to be discussed and that people need help. And what I appreciate about the book, and we'll get into the content and how you and how you um, came about writing it was the the idea that it speaks to research, um, you know, what we know, but there's also the fact that you have given pragmatic solutions at different ages and stages for parents. So it really is, I feel, a must read for for all parents, no matter where you are in your parenting journey. <laughs> There's right, It's never too late, never too early, never too late. But tell us a little bit about how you picked the topic and how you got going on it. So the topic found me, I I mean, as you said, I've been teaching for, I was teaching for 20 years. I'm not teaching now, which I'll talk talk about at the very end, but um, I was teaching middle school at the time and noticing some trends happening with my kids, some things happening. When I say kids, of course, I mean students. That happens all the time. What I meant was my students. What I was noticing was first with my students that um, I was getting sort of miffed at their parents for some of the overparenting they were doing um, that was getting in the way of some of the learning opportunities that I love so much about middle school. I mean, the reason my heart lies with middle school is that it's this time of just watching kids mess up just all over the place and then getting to help them learn from their mistakes. It's just the most, I think because that's the expectation going in, it's so much fun to teach middle school. Um, and so as miffed as I was with some of their parents, I got to a place where it was it was bad, where, you know, I was upset enough that it was getting in the way of relationships and I knew that was a problem. And at the same time, then I realized I was doing the same thing with my own kids. And for me, there are two major parts of it that were most worrisome. And some of it had to do with motivation and why kids were motivated and whether they were motivated and whether or not they were engaged, even if they looked motivated. And then the other side of it had to do with how over-parenting, directive parenting, controlling parenting, whatever you want to call it, affects learning. And and to me, that, that piece you know, from a teacher's perspective, that's the secret sauce. You know, you have to know whether or not the kids are learning and how they're learning and that kind of thing. So I come at this both from a parent as a parent and a teacher, which is how I tried to write the book, book which is also, I don't know, a, a thin line to walk. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's easier to write about it than actually live it, right? But the book, yeah. besides your, your teaching experience and, of course, your own parenting experience, it isn't just about learning from mistakes in an academic sense or engaging just with academic learning. Really, oh, no. It's about all life. It's all life lessons. It's, it's the yeah. whole jam. It's also, you know, it's there's a whole thing in there about sports and there's stuff in there, but it's basically about how to get kids engaged in doing the stuff that we want them to do, the stuff they want to do, and getting them engaged for the right reasons, for the sake of the thing itself, as opposed to, you know, because we're tempting them with some carrot and stick out there. Yeah. I think one of the things that I found um, shocking was some of the statistics that you gave about how many teachers go into teaching and then the thing that the thing that drives them out is not yeah. the frustration of the classroom stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, and we're, of course, in a really strange place right now where we don't, you know, teachers are being bombarded on all sides for, you know, either getting not getting remote learning right and all that sort of stuff. It's right now is a really particularly difficult time to be a teacher. But overall, being a teacher has always been underpaid and always been there's always been too much asked of teachers. So add on top of that, you know especially in schools where that are really high pressure sort of situations, the the pressure that the parents put on the teachers in terms of, you know, why is this an 89 and not a 91 and that kind of stuff um, was is really difficult. You know, my very first teaching experience was in a boarding situation over, over a summer program. So I had, with the exception of saying, you know, hello at the beginning and, and nice to see you again at the end. And we had such a fun summer and here's your kid back. I didn't have a lot of interaction with the parents, but obviously as that shifted over time, um, it, it got to be a really difficult and extremely challenging part of the job. Yeah. And, you know, you start the the book uh, giving us a bit of an overview to understand historically how we have moved in our understanding of kids, the mm-hmm. expectation of what they can do, you right. know, what we thought the job of parenting was. Can you just give us like the high notes of that kind of going from the pilgrims arriving in the cold <laughs> <laughs> to, to right there through is. to attachment parenting? Short answer. Such a short answer there. Now, yeah, just I mean, cover I think, 300 years of history <laughs> exactly. in, in a few. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the the answer usually to the question I get, which is how did we end up in this spot? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have fewer children after at a later age, after more education, after more time out in the workforce. And so, you know, I know I became incredibly dependent on sort of short-term reviews of my performance. And I, I, you know, I'm a big people pleaser and I'm a perfectionist. I always wanted to know, you know, what's the goal and how am I going to get there? And then suddenly I have kids and no one's giving me any feedback except for maybe the pediatrician and those growth charts you know, in the form of a growth chart. And the pediatrician, frankly, I'm looking forward to those pediatrician appointments because that's the only place that anyone's going to care about, you know. And by the way, I'm, you know, doing all these things that you told me to do and I'm keeping this checklist and blah, blah, blah. And I'm using all these tools that I got in the workforce or in um, in higher education in order to like assess how well I'm doing in my parenting. And then we start looking to our kids to be a reflection of, our parenting performance. And that's so unfair, not only to us, because as most parents can tell you, you know, you think you've nailed it until you realize, oh, wait, this child, they're their own person with their own thoughts and feelings. And, you know, and my my parents joke constantly that um, I was a super easy baby and man, they really thought they'd nailed it. And then they had my sister who, you know, just was colicky and didn't want to do anything that they wanted her to do. And, you know, she turned out great. And so there's, you know, we think we're doing everything just great until we realize that these are not just extensions of our ego and our bodies. They're actually their own human beings with their own wants and needs and likes and dislikes. Um, so looking to our kids to be a report card really, I think is at the, is at the center. Um, and, you know, going back historically, it used to be, we used to talk about child rearing and which is centered on the child. And now we talk about it as parenting, which is more centered on us. And so there's all of these expectations now that we're supposed to, you know, go pull out all the stops and do everything possible to make it so that our kids will have the best possible future, the brightest possible future. Um, And that's just 
a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Yeah. And I I think that we have a real scarcity mentality that we're sort of fed a story that only the people, the the cream that rise to the crop are the only ones that are going to make it out there. Yeah. And that race to the top starts earlier and earlier. You know, it used to just be maybe the last couple of years of high school when you thought you had to get a good resume together to apply to different universities and colleges. And now people hire educational consultants at kindergarten and map out the whole course and, you know, God forbid you have a kid who actually would like to go into the trades. You know, it's like, well, and that's been, they were all academics. We had no plumbers. Like, <laughs> Let's try that. World. Well, that's been the gift of, you know, hanging out in schools for the past couple of years. I mean, most, I spend a lot of my time on the road in schools, speaking to kids during the day and then um, teachers in the afternoon, and then usually the parents in the evening. And I get to, and I give, what's really fun is during my talks, when I give the kids, I give all of them my email address and I ask them to email me before I talk to the parents in the evening and let them know what they what they want me to talk or let sorry let me know what they want me to tell their parents about and it's really interesting just the the pressures they feel they're under the stresses they're under the things that they really want parents to know and you know a lot of it comes down to the things you mentioned and the stress of having to be you know the perfect scholar musician athlete but Honestly, that's not the most um, emailed feedback I get. The thing that they really want their parents to know is that they don't feel seen, heard, known, loved for themselves and not some imaginary version um, that parents have of the kid. I mean, essentially, it comes down to, please, you know, I'm not my brother. I'm not my sister. Please see me. Don't think of me as some extension of you, some opportunity for you to get a do-over on your um, your academic life, your childhood, whatever. Um, so that's really worrisome to me because that means that a lot of kids are feeling like they are not being known for themselves. And um, Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote How to Be How to Raise a, an Adult, she and I talk about this all the time, that at the center of what we do, at the center of every speaking engagement, at the center of everything we write is helping people, helping children, helping adolescents, helping young adults um, find their voice and express their voice and their identity in the world, as opposed to the voices and the identities that other people are imposing on them or projecting on them. And so, you know, helping kids feel known, it, it's basically the best job in the whole world, really. Yeah. If we can get parents to make that, that mind shift around it. Um, some of the information that you bring forward speaks to the idea of maybe some of our mistaken ideas about kids and motivation, that we have this feeling that if we didn't control, if we didn't dictate, if we didn't create the structure, that for sure they would flounder. Um, And that that really speaks to an underestimation of our children and a mistaken belief about where motivation comes from. Yeah, I think the problem is, and you know, this is something that certainly is not original to, to my work. I mean, I mean, Dan Pink writes about it in Drive. Edward D.C. writes about it and researches it so brilliantly. And, and his book, Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation, is such a great resource. You know, we have had this um, this practice of using extrinsic motivators, whether they're the, you know, sort of carrot and sticks of paying for grades or giving rewards for grades or, you know, exchange of love for the performance that we want. Um, and then the negative things like controlling kids, surveillance of kids through their phones and through, you know, the, the, the school portals. And I'm not saying we can't use these things, but extrinsic motivators do not boost long-term motivation. They undermine motiv- long-term motivation. They work great in the short term. They work 
horribly in the long term. Not only do they undermine, um, you know, our kids' motivation to do the things we want them to do, it also undermines creativity. So when you look at, you know, what education should be, which is a long-term creative endeavor, we're actually undermining it by using grades, point scores, and the rewards that we give for those things, the love in exchange for performance. So, and again, not saying we can't use those things, but if we could focus more on helping kids be intrinsically motivated and help kids understand that what we really do care about is the learning as opposed or the process of learning as opposed to the end product in the form of a grade point score honors, whatever, um, then we would be more likely to get them engaged in learning for the long term. And that's not easy to do. And that's what two thirds of, you know, the gift of failure is about the very specific steps to getting kids engaged for the sake of the learning itself or the soccer or the piano playing or whatever it is that we're hoping that our kids stay engaged in for the long term. And I think that that's helpful for parents to understand that there's, you know, the long game (laughs) versus the, because, because, you know, families are, are, um, well, especially now, uh, really stressed. And it's very hard to think long term when you just want to get through the moment. So when you're at home and, you know, you can't get your kid off their technology, but they got a science test tomorrow and you're barking at their door and saying, I'm going to confiscate your phone and I'm going to sit beside you and all these things. They're so worried. If you don't study for this test, you're going to fail that. And if you fail the test, then you're going to fail the year. And if you fail the year, then you're going to drop out of high school. And you drop out of high school, you're going to live in an underpass and be a drug addict. It's like, whoa, where yeah. <laughs> How did we get so far down that thought train and, uh, and to be able to have faith, you know, faith in the, in the bigger picture and faith yeah. of the recovery uh, from mistakes. So can, can you talk a little bit about this mistake making and failure and why we need to actually embrace that as a good thing, as opposed to being so incredibly fearful and phobic around it, both as parents, but, but also we have to convey that to kids because they're, yeah. they're all, even for the parents that learn to chill, Kids, kids can have, the, you know, the higher expectation for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with what you're talking about. I tend to think of as like an urgent care mentality. My husband's a physician and we talk a lot about like the patch them up and send them out as opposed to the investment in preventative care that we really should have. So, you know, unfortunately, what we're what we do is tend to do a lot of patching up of those emergency moments with our kids, whether it's, you know, taking the homework in when they've left it on the coffee table at home or delivering those cleats because they forgot them for their soccer practice or calling the teacher for the kid to give them an excuse for why they shouldn't, that test shouldn't count or whatever. That emergency mentality does us a huge disservice because it undermines a lot of things, including our kids' long-term growth. And I, I often say, you know, would you rather have a a kid, would you rather have your dishwasher loaded absolutely perfectly the way you like it with all the dishes north, south, or east, west, or whatever your orientation is that you like in the dishwasher? Or would you like to have a kid that can do it themselves well next time? I mean, that sort of um, living in those emergency moments gets us so ramped up and you and the media feeds that and we feed that in each other. Um, Wendy Grolnick in her book, Pressured Parents, Anxious Kids, talks about this pressured parents phenomenon where we are each other's worst enemy. Because And I wrote about this for The Atlantic, actually, in a piece called Why Back to School Night Made Me Feel Like a Bad Parent, because I showed up for back to school night feeling pretty good about my parenting. And um, 
I just was listening to all the other parents as they settled in. And frankly, some of it was just catching up and some of it was boasting, you know, oh, we haven't even been home yet because we've been to traveling soccer and all the cello lessons and the string quartet and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, you know, one of my kids is at home playing Layla on his guitar and the other one's playing Minecraft. And I was okay with that until I got here and I realized that I'm basically the worst parent on the planet. And we do that to each other. We, you know, sort of get each other right up. So I think until we realize that, you know, parenting is a long haul job. It's not in, we are not, our parenting is not judged in those small moments. It's judged either by us, by history, by our kids over the long haul. Um, our kids are not going to remember that time that we brought the math homework in. It'll make us feel better, I suppose, you know, it'll make us feel like we're fixing, you know, showing our love, whatever. But the things that our kids really remember over time is, you know, did my parents trust me to make good decisions? Did my parents generally feel like I was a competent person, could handle things myself? And they're going to remember the moments that they learn from their own mistakes. And the learning, again, gift of failure is called gift of failure, but I don't want kids to fail. That's not at all what I want. I hate seeing it in my own kids. I hate seeing it in my students. It makes me nervous. I just want to fix it. But we are going to make mistakes. And so what I want is for kids to have what's called a positive adaptive response when they do. Do they freak out and fall apart and think that there's no way that they're ever gonna be able to learn math ever, ever, ever? Or do we want them to be able to say, okay, what went wrong? What do I leave behind? What do I take forward with me? How do I do better next time? And we need to model that for them. So whether that's, you know, sweetie, I am so sorry. I have been underestimating you and I need to give you some more control over your life. And so let's do that. Or, man, you know, I screwed up at work today and hit reply all when I meant to hit reply. And so many people are mad at me now and I just don't know how to fix that. What would you do? All of that modeling of us, you know, dealing with the mistakes that we've made in a positive, adaptive way is, is some of the best teaching we can do for kids too. Yeah. Um, and, and so again, you you go outside the academic realm and you talk about friendships. I, I find that yeah. again in my private counseling practice that mm-hmm. if they aren't com- coming in worried about their kids not thriving in school, and of course we're in, in extremely different <laughs> learning yeah. environments right yeah. now, but, but, but because kids are isolated, there's a real worry about their friendships oh. and they're hanging with yep. the wrong people and those people are vaping or they don't have any friends and they didn't get invited to the birthday party. And I can't believe how much parents will tell me stuff they read on their kid's phone, which I think is such a, you know, I believe in, in safety and and surveillance, Mm -hmm. but, but not um, literally invading their privacy and repeating whole conversation. I mean, my, my parents knew my friends, but there's no way my parents had the level yeah. of of enmeshment in in my business that today's right. parents do, and especially around friendship and their fear of their kids not being socially successful. Well, and a lot of that comes, you know, I one of the, a lot of that comes from us. I mean, we I joke that when I have a parent teacher conference and teachers, generally speaking, that we all know this, we all joke about this, that when we have a parent teacher conference and and ideally it's with the kid in the room too, but most often it's not. It's just the parent and the teacher. We need to change that. They should be student led parent teacher uh, conferences. Oh, here, uh, here, but, here, here. 
But if you think about the number of people that are actually in the room, it's not just the parents and the teacher. It's the parent when they were in high school themselves and got bullied. And it's the parent who remembered like their greatest fear was that time that when they were 12 and they had a whole bunch of friends invited to a party and nobody showed up and they were devastated. And that's still one of the worst moments of their whole life. You know, all of these people that are in their imperfect image of their kid and their, you know, all that baggage, that's what's sort of feeding into this. And then at the same time, I mean, you're talking about surveillance on phones. I have, I had a kid recently tell me that not only do his parents surveil him on the phone and watch where he's going and where he's, how he's getting there, they actually critique the routes he takes when he gets home and he's almost 18 years old. So, and I, I have to say as a parent, I'm pretty hardcore. I've never, ever looked at my children's phones. I've never looked at their emails. I've never looked at their search history. None of those things. I We talk a lot about it, but it's not something that I'm willing to do simply because I need for them to know that I respect their privacy and I respect their, because just as someone who writes and someone who writes a lot of, uh, do a lot of like sort of David Sedaris-esque sort of journal writing, di diary writing, um, I don't, I am impaired in my ability to be creative and honest in my writing if I feel like someone's going to be looking over my shoulder. And I need for my kids to have those places. I need for their kids, my kids to have a place to express themselves. And um, we, you know, if we think about when we used to, you know, have landlines, there was always that sort of extra line in like the, the living room. And our nightmare scenario was that that cute kid who we've had a crush on is going to call us and then someone's going to go in the other room and pick up that line and listen to us. And that would be like the most egregious. It's like reading the diary and listening in on the extra line are the most egregious invasions of privacy. And that's how kids communicate now is by text and by DM. And so reading those things is like listening in on the extra line. And that invasion of privacy, I think, is such does a lot of damage to our relationships with our kids. So I tend to be pretty hardcore about that. And I just think that especially right now when they don't have the ability to socialize in person that a lot of what they a lot of their social emotional needs are being met um, through social media through gaming while talking to their friends through discord servers through all these different places that they can go online and if that freaks you out go read Devorah Heitner's Screenwise. It's such a fantastic piece of writing about kids and um, and screen time. Read Jordan Shapiro's The New Childhood if you really need to have your perspective on um, kids and tech challenged a little bit and thinking about you know what screen time is actually worth to them and and why we're so threatened by it. So anyway, I it's, you know it's I have, amazing I, how much the common thread keeps coming yeah. back to us as parents and our and our fears. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and the I'm and scared the, to death that my kid is going to be shunned, embarrassed, uh, you know, whatever. And I want to fix that. But just in the same way that you can't force people to be friends with your child. And believe me, my parents tried it. I tried it. You know, you can't do it. doesn't work. You also can't um, eliminate all of that toxicity. And it's it's so hard to witness. It really is. You know, like I remember the first time my one of my kids got dumped. 
there were tears and my heart was breaking and I because I had all these memories of when I got dumped and you just want to take that away from your kids but you can't that's a part of what they have to go through in order to become fully realized human beings yeah we can't we can't we can be supported but we can't relieve the pain and I, and life yeah. is full of life is full of dangers and risks um mm. you know you think about uh, I think one of the hardest things for me it's different for different parents but man when my kids got their driver's license oh. and they and I'm like now yeah. you're behind a piece of metal that can go yeah. 120 kilometers an hour and you're out in the highway even if you're a good driver there's right. still going to be some tired 18 wheeler out there that's pulling an all-nighter that could you know I I was apoplectic but I didn't say you can't drive it was like well, and if you and if you think about stress. well and if you think about use that driving example and think about I was at a school last year um and the Unfortunately, I did not realize this when I took the speaking engagement, but after the fact, I found out that this school um, is on the surface. I should have been, it was really, it was not my due diligence. I shouldn't, didn't do my due diligence. And I found out this school shuns kit, LGBTQ kids. Oh. They uh, do not allow them to be open in the school. And so what was really Please interesting- tell me that was a private school. It was a private school. Okay, and, I was but, and, that and, can't be happening well, in our public education. No, system. and there's a happy, there's a not for those kids, but there's a happy ending in terms of how I, I dealt with that. But the, um, the one, one of the interesting things was that the parents of this school and the faculty and the school security were obsessed with the risk of kids being sex trafficked. And what was really interesting is that happens because we tend to get outraged and upset by the most, um, the things that really freak us out that the media throws at us. So sex trafficking is just really scary. It's a really heightened response. You know, we have a really heightened response to that. Now, what's really fascinating about that school in particular is that one of the highest risk groups for kids who get sex trafficked are LGBTQ kids who are shunned by their families. And this was a religious school that um, where it was not okay to be LGBTQ. And so if they were really worried about the risk of their kids being sex trafficked, they would actually address the things that put their kids at risk for being sex trafficked. But instead what they wanted was for their kids to just be scared to death of it all the time and be so worried about. And, and yet at the same time, those same parents, I bet you, you, I'm guessing, don't remind their kids to buckle their seatbelts every time they go out. Maybe they don't remove the opiates from their medicine cabinet um, thinking, oh, it'll be fine, or I just, you know, not even realize they're there. And yet these are some of the bigger real risks that are not quite as exciting and sexy as some of the scary, scary things that the media likes to throw at us. Like, you know, uh, these big, scary, like the Momo challenge was a thing like last year and it didn't even really exist. It was just something that was big and scary and elicited a fear response from parents. And so we forget the everyday stuff, the buckle your seatbelt, you know, let's go take a private, uh, let's go take a, um, we just had snow here and I was just thinking the other day, I need to take my kid out to a parking lot and teach him how to skid in the snow so that he'll know. And these are the things that 
aren't quite at the top of our minds because they're everyday, you know, boring stuff. Whereas we tend to get really worked up about the things that the media throws at us and makes us think, oh, yeah, no, if I let my kid walk around the block by himself, he's going to get kidnapped the minute he leaves my driveway. And that's just not the case. Go to um, Lenore Skenazi um, used to have her free range parenting site, oh, which yeah. is now her let grow site. And if you Google free range kids and, um, and reassuring crime statistics, she has a fantastic page that reports on the crime statistics. It's one of the safest times in history to be a child right now, and especially in terms of violent crime. And yet that's not how we think. We tend to think in terms of those emergencies that freak us out. So we need to be a little more, think about the real risks to our kids as opposed to the, uh, the things that scare us the most. And um, to your point, you know, when we think about anxious kids, depressed kids or whatever, um, if all they hear is a worldview that you're not capable and the world is a scary place, what's a child yeah. likely to deduce? That isn't a safe world yeah. to take risks and to, and to be creative and to, to push your growing edge, which might lead to a mistake until, until you clean it up. And, and maybe we yeah. should talk about that. So what, so what, how do we recover? What, what, what's your advice for parents and kids around? Yep. So the inevitable happened, whatever we failed the yeah. test, we broke up with the girlfriend. That story cracked me up. Cause I remember my, <laughs> my daughter breaking up at one point and she was so upset and I comforted her in the evening. And then of course I tossed and turned all night worrying about her, but meanwhile, they made up <laughs> by, you know, by text and I wake up in the morning and I've now like totally lost a night's sleep. She's like, Oh no, it's good. We worked it through. I'm like, my heart, most difficult breakup. I remember my mom very specifically sitting there while I was like stress cleaning my closet or something and just <laughs> wanting to take all the pain away. And when that finally happened to me and I was the mom, I'm like, oh, now I understand. <laughs> um, so I think the big answer to the question of what do I change now in order to sort of be giving, you know, think about giving my kids more autonomy, helping them feel more competent, you know, all that sort of stuff is we have to focus number one, more on the process of becoming, learning, being all these sorts of things more than the end product. We have to love the kids we have and not the kids we wish we had. And we can't just love our kids based on the performance. And those bits sound like the love the kids you have, not the kids you wish you had, and don't just love them based on their performance feels like such a slap in the face. And yet we do it all the time without thinking about what we're doing. You know, when we put that report card up on the refrigerator and go crazy over an A and then are kind of silent over a C, we're showing them that what we care more about is that letter at the end, as opposed to, you know, that conversation about, huh, well, that's an interesting grade. So what did you do to get that grade? Um, what are you going to do next semester that you didn't do this semester? What do you, have you talked to the teacher yet to find out sort of what went wrong? You know, if your friend got a higher grade and you got a lower grade, what did your friend do that you didn't do? What are you going to take away in this moment as the learning opportunity and not do next time? And, you know, when I first started writing about this. After I wrote Gift to Failure, I was asked to be a part of a, a show called The Stinky and Dirty Show on Amazon. And at first I said, no, because I don't want to be a part of more screen time for kids. But the show itself is about these kids who think it's sort of a preschool level, these machines that think it like a preschool kid level. And they're tasked with something that they have to get done 
And inevitably, their first try makes no sense. They have come up with a solution that makes no sense because it's a preschool level sort of thing. And then they have to, every step of the way, every iteration of trying to complete this task, they have to think about what worked, what didn't work, leave behind what didn't work, bring forward with us what did work, and try to do better next time. And that sort of support for that kind of thinking is what's going to help our kids believe us when what we say is, you know, what I really care about is the learning and help them believe us when we say we love them no matter what, no matter whether it's an A or a C, we still love them. And lots and lots of kids, um, according to anyway, the anecdotal evidence I have of five years of going out on the road, one of the things I get to do is ask kids, um, I have ever all the kids in the room close their eyes. I ask them three questions. I ask them to raise their hands if they get paid for grades, and that's about 15 to 20% of the kids. Then I ask them to raise their hand if they get stuff in exchange for grades, and that's about 20 to 25%. And then I ask them, and make them promise to close their eyes, I ask them to raise their hands if they really truly believe in their hearts that their parents love them more when they get high grades and less when they get low grades. And in middle school, it tends to be about 80% of the kids raise their hands. And in middle, in high school, it's about 90. So we are somehow conveying to our children that we love them more when they perform for us and, you know, bring home those high grades that they want and less when they don't. Um, and that's devastating to me to think about, you know, the emotional impact of that on kids. Wow, so, that's powerful. Yeah. Well, to your point, you know, it's if if we just say the sentence, it's okay, just try your best. But everything else in the course of our, the subtle undertones of what we do and say clearly mm. projects what our value is right. and what our expectations right. are for those kids. And to think that they're not picking up on that and receiving, that's a much louder cacophony yeah. of quiet messages yeah. that they ingest and internalize. Yeah. Well, and wow. if you look at, you know, Harvard's Making Caring Common Project, they did that study a couple of years ago where they looked at, you know, what kids value more, being a good, kind, caring person or doing well academically. And kids said over overwhelmingly doing well academically. And then they asked the kids what their parents valued more, whether they were a good, kind, caring kid or doing well academically. And overwhelmingly said, the kids said, my parents care more that I do well academically. And, and that says a lot about what we value in and how we raise our kids and what we're raising our kids with what goals we're raising our kids. And that that's worrisome to me. Yeah. And that is, a, and that is a cultural shift that we need to mm -hmm. change the tides on. And if people read this book, they will. And, <laughs> and well, and you know, you, you really will have the, the research to support that you don't need to be fearful. You actually are on the right path in doing this to move towards success, which I think is, is calming the, and quelling the, the fears of the parents who really mm -hmm. are well-intentioned, you know, mm -hmm. really of do course. want, we all want everything we do, kids. everything we do is, you know, generally speaking, I, I am an optimist. I really want to believe that everything we do around our kids has to do with us wanting the best for them because we love them. Um, so I, and believe me, I screwed up all the time, all the time. I have to remind myself, oh my gosh, process over product, process over product. This is a long-term, I can't freak out because this is a long-term haul. These are, you know, I write about this stuff because I need to remind myself of this stuff. All, yeah, all of us. And, and, and same thing to your point, then if we're giving ourselves our parenting report card, get, get, get off the end and final <laughs> stick, stick with your own parenting journey. And if this is the first time you've heard these concepts, then be kind and compassionate to yourself. You didn't Absolutely. know what you didn't know. And now you know something new. So yeah, give it a try, be a newbie, do something that feels outside the box, right? Right. And, and the other thing I love is this idea now that, 
you know, our kids are as successful as their grades, trophies, whatever. But, you know, I, I really encourage parents to look at who their kids really are and realize, oh, wow, my kid is really sensitive to other people's feelings and has an incredible sense of empathy. And that's clearly their strength. And I am so proud of my child for the ability to envision how other people must be feeling right now. That is a strength in them. And understanding that, you know, things like that, the ability to see that in our kids not only helps our kids believe them when we say, you know, that we really know them and see them and love them for who they are, but it also helps them believe that we um, we care about that stuff and, and that those are things we value in our children. Yeah, those, the, char- the character traits that seem to have been falling to the backdrop. I, I know David Brooks's book on character came out a while ago, but even then he said that now that fame was number two on the list of, yeah. of character traits for kids. Yeah. So there's yeah. some, yeah, definite work to do. Can and you go read us- and go read Michelle Borba's Unselfie. Unselfie has been such a valuable book for me to have. I pick it up a lot and just reread little bits of it to help me, to help remind me about what's really important in helping our kids value, you know, these moments of empathy, these moments of perspective taking and, and understanding how other people are going through the world. I just, I actually just uh, interviewed her a couple weeks ago. So, so timely great. that you did a little call out to that. That's She's great. so great. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the the new release and can, can mm-hmm. you pre-order it? I know it's as uh, publishers love the pre-orders, right? Let's give it, let's give it a. Well, a, and for your listeners, the reason pre-orders are so important is that pre-orders determine how many books suppliers are going to put in their stores, on their shelves, in their warehouses. And it really sets the stage. It's sort of like if you think about the movie industry and, you know, that movie has to have a $20 million first release or it's doomed and it's going to go straight to video. It's a similar thing for books. So that's why we rail about pre-orders. Yeah. The book is definitely available for pre-order. In fact, if you go to jessicalahey.com, it's got links to all the places you can get it. Um, I'll put the, it up in the show notes too, Jess. That yeah. would be great. But the reason I ended up writing about substance abuse, not so I'm an alcoholic and I have six and a half years of recovery. I grew up as the child of an alcoholic and my husband grew up as someone who had addiction in his family. And I spent five years teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab where, you know, the kids that I taught were struggling with substance abuse themselves. And I just really wanted to understand, I wasn't seeing a lot of resources for what really truly works in prevention. And then of course we have all this new information around adverse childhood experiences and their impact on um, our well-being over our lifetime. And so it's a little bit looking at thinking about it as like a scale, you know, what's the most important thing that we have to keep in mind at the top of our minds in terms of prevention. And if we know what our kids' risk factors are, don't let that freak us out as as, uh, that information is valuable because the more risk factors a kid has, like early academic failure, um, aggression towards other children, um, early social ostracism, you know, substance abuse in our own uh, family history, which is about 50% of the the puzzle. Those sorts of uh, traumas, obviously, those sorts of risk factors just means that we have to heap more protection on top. And so I I explored everything that could possibly be a protective measure from you know, the way we parent to, you know, does the kid have a pet? You know, all of these things that have sort of bubbled up in like, oh, maybe therapy animals to help. All these small things that, you know, looking at what I could do in order to reduce my kid's own chances of becoming uh, addicted to substances over their lifetime, which 
I'm frankly raising two kids who already have an elevated risk. Um, I just wanted to know for them and for my students and moving forward for kids in general, how we can reduce the risk of substance abuse as low as possible because addiction is a preventive, is a preventable um, disease. And no matter how you want to look at substance abuse, whether you want to think of it, oh, here, my dogs are getting all excited. Yeah, they're good. That's all right. They know we're coming to the end. They're like, wrap it up, Anna. <laughs> It is a preventable disease. It, it is whether you want to call it a disease, a brain disorder, a, a, a trauma response, and it is all of these things. Um, however you want to look at it, it is something that we can prevent as a society. So how we do that, that's what's interesting to me. So it's an evidence-based look at what we can do to prevent substance abuse in kids. Amazing. And, you know, and uh, I work on a campaign called Hashtag Family Talk um, that's mm -hmm. also about um, reducing mm -hmm. and preventing underage drinking. It's specific only to alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, part of it is, yeah, there's, there's, to your point, changes in, within the family, but also changes within our culture and school cultures, mm -hmm. our, our larger right. culture. It's really, yeah. it's everybody's concern. So even if you don't have the child who maybe um, is at high risk mm -hmm. in your particular family, I think everybody has um, yep. a little bit to shoulder in the game of, of this for all society. And there's an entire chapter in the book on schools and what really good uh, substance abuse prevention programs look like, what coaches can do, what mentors can do. Um, there's all there are roles to be played um, by just about everyone. Yeah. So it's uh, it, oh. it, plus I love doing the research. It was so much fun. I can't, I can't wait to dig in. Well, I will. I'll do the pre-order. I'll do the pre-order. I'm on your <laughs> list. Let's. We we want it to have a smash first weekend so that it, <laughs> so it doesn't get relegated relegated to video. I'm I am quite sure it. Will. It's too, it's too good of, a, of an author and too great of a topic. So Alyssa, thank you so much for making time. Oh, it's absolutely. been a pleasure to chat with you. And, and when the book comes out, I get a chance to read through it. I will uh, get you back on and of we'll course. dig into some of the content um, more deeply then. So until that then, have a wonderful, great. wonderful holiday. Thank you so much. And you too. Okay. Take care. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.